Hello and welcome back to Axe of Pod. My name is Brandon Shu. I'm the host of Axe of Pod. This week we're doing something a little bit different. We are rebroadcasting an interview I did for Minnesota RIMS, that's the Risk and Insurance Management Society, here in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. Last week I interviewed Justin Whitehead, who is the head of casualty for Howden, a London brokerage. And Justin gave us an update on what's going on in the London market in terms of pricing capacity, a little bit of a history lesson, and uh, all good stuff, particularly for those who want to get kind of a better feel for what's going on in the insurance and casualty space today, uh, you know, having it be quite a disrupted marketplace. So we were happy to talk to Justin, and I'm happy to be able to rebroadcast it here on the pod. So thanks for tuning in. We're going to be interviewing today Justin Whitehead, even though his name says Tara on the uh, the byline here, but I, that was due to some technical difficulties. So Justin is a, a London broker with Howden, Howden Specialty in, in London, and it's, what is it there, about 4 p.m., Justin? He's helping us in the late day here, which we appreciate. Justin, thanks for joining us at our second Minnesota RIMS virtual meeting. Yeah, thank you, Brandon. And uh, thank you very much indeed for the invitation to join the crew from RIMS uh, Minneapolis in Minnesota. And I'm sure I know some of you and uh, some of you I haven't met. Nice to meet you as well. So yeah, my name's Justin Whitehead. I'm an executive director in the Howden Specialty Group. We were RK Harrison for oh, 105 years and we just changed our name to Howden as part of our new branding. We're an independent broker. We have about 7,000 people from London to China. We specialize in virtually all wholesale classes of business in London. My role is very much a casualty product recall for the most part and been doing it for about 30 years and partnered with Brandon and various other independent agents and clients and risk managers across the US. So again, just wanted to say thank you very much indeed for the invitation and look forward to talking to you. I've had the pleasure of working with Justin for a number of years now. We thought that it would be a good idea to give you a under-the-hood glimpse of what's going on right now in the Lloyd's marketplace. Lloyd's is obviously very important to the infrastructure of the of the insurance marketplace, and it's kind of where everything starts and finishes. So I thought it would be good to kind of have Justin give you his perspective on on what's happening and what can we expect moving forward. So, Justin, maybe as just a you know a, a perspective here, giving a, a little bit of a Lloyd's maybe 101 and how the marketplace works and how it differs from maybe the U.S. casualty marketplace. Yeah, well, I'll try and keep it brief because there's 340 years of history to uh, to go through. Big deal. Yeah. I'll keep it. Uh, I'll keep it short and succinct. So yes, yeah, so Lloyd was set up about 340 years ago by Edward Lloyd in a coffee shop. Back then, it was very much about marine trading, insuring ships. Funny enough, going from England to the US, and really, you know, from there, it has survived 340 years of challenge after challenge and opportunity after opportunity. So. I guess from everybody's sort of standpoint on the call today, I think you know the probably the most important thing to understand is how the the structure of Lloyd has changed over those years. So previously, up until about sort of the 90, 1990s, Lloyd's was primarily capitalized by what I would class as sort of high, high net worth individuals. So individuals would pledge their assets and their fortunes 
to provide capacity behind various Lloyd syndicates. And that method of capitalization existed, as I said, really for uh, you know about 320 years. So in the 1990s, Lloyd probably faced its biggest challenge, which was the emergence of back then one of the greatest crises of our times, which was asbestos and pollution. Lloyd's had been writing in the US long tail casualty lines for many, many, many years, as well as property and other lines. But the emergence of asbestos pollution, which be honest, many have forgotten about now because we have our other challenges in today's world, really brought Lloyd's to its uh, knees. So at that time in the 90s, Lloyd's was faced with a, a really enormous challenge, which many thought it wouldn't survive. But then a man called Warren Buffett and, and a company called Berkshire Hathaway came to the rescue, did a, a very, very clever, as only Warren could do, deal called Equitas, which was basically formed to run off the old liabilities of Lloyd's through a separate vehicle. And that was concluded in the 90s. And from there, Lloyd's could basically start again with fresh new capital. All the tale of the past was, as I said, wrapped into Equitas. But it also needed to find new backers because the individual names that were at Lloyd's were passing to the stairway to heaven or were bankrupt or had other reasons to withdraw their capacity. So so Lloyd's then went into the corporate capital market and the likes of Chinese insurance companies, American insurance companies, Bermuda insurance companies, banks and other financial vehicles then put forward together uh, new capital into Lloyd's. So the Lloyd's today is backed by what I call very different capital, much more corporate institutions as opposed to individuals. When I first started in the 1980s, there were probably about 350 syndicates. Today, they're probably, and it's increasing, probably close to about 100 syndicates a day. So the makeup of Lloyd's is very much changed in terms of the corporate capital backing and also in terms of the number of syndicates. So the syndicate, as a result, are much larger, much more powerful. And Lloyd's that still maintains its licensing across the world. Obviously, I know we'll talk about Brexit and what all that means. But, but in terms of its licensing, it's still a very attractive franchise for many because of its licenses across the globe. It's registered in the US and approved to write surplus lines on a direct basis across every state. It's approved to write reinsurance as well. So all those licenses mean a lot for a lot of people. But that in a nutshell, Brandon, is, <laughs> and I could go on, go on for a lot longer, is, is the, brief, uh, the brief history. Very good. Thanks again to Warren Buffett for saving us through another period of turmoil. Well, why don't we talk about the state of the, the casualty marketplace and what sort of challenges that Lloyd's is confronting today and you know how that, you know, from a juxtaposition standpoint, looks in terms of some of the challenges that it's it's looked at in its past. And that's a great question. And you know, today, you know, we find ourselves in a very different market. I'm, I'm slightly hesitating to say the word hard market because it's patchy. It's not like any other hard market I've seen. I mean, I've seen two hard markets in my career. One was in the mid 80s where it was a true crisis and capacity was, I mean, really, really difficult to find. And then we had 9 11, 
which brought on a whole set of other challenges. And here we are in 2020, faced with what would seem to be more than one challenge. Yes, COVID obviously presenting challenges across the industry, but from a casualty standpoint, I wouldn't say casualty rates are hard or challenging because of COVID. It's a whole influx of different issues that are hitting the market at the same time. So it's almost like the perfect storm going on at the moment in the casualty world, which is causing significant pain to many. I'm struggling to use the word hard market, although I, I'm sure some, some of you will say it is hard. And it is hard in certain aspects. It's what I call almost like a micro hard market. You know, there are pockets of business and pockets of classes, pockets of capacity that are really, really challenging right now. But I think what we're finding is everything is getting done. And it's just a question of price. It's a question of capacity. And things have definitely tightened significantly. So, so Lloyd's, you know, has enjoyed the U.S. casualty market, well, for 340 years. It's very different today in terms of its appetite and its makeup and what it's going after. There has been a review at Lloyd's called Decile 10, which some of you may have heard of over the last two years. So Lloyd's basically examined all the Lloyd syndicates and basically came up with what they call Decile 10. So Decile 10 is the 10 worst performing classes of business that every syndicate was writing. And it didn't have to be casualty. It could be personal accident. It could be employer's liability, depending what it is. So it basically told those poorly performing Lloyd syndicates that they had to get their act together and figure out their way to get out of Decile 10, either non-renew it or improve the ratios to start making a profit. And part of the challenge of all of this is because, you know, 2017, 2018, 2019 have all produced consecutive underwriting losses to the market. The corporation of Lloyd said, right, enough's enough. We've got to figure out how we're going to turn out of the red and into the black. So the pressure has been put upon the syndicates to turn those businesses around. The quite good news is, is that the U.S. casualty indexes probably not as bad as some of the other indexes in terms of poorly performing lines. You know, there are some lines like marine and aviation, just, just for example, and I don't mean to pick on the, the mariners or the aviators. Those are some of the, you know, the worst performing lines where ratios are anywhere from 120 to 170% loss ratio. So there's significant issues faced with those businesses. Some Lloyd syndicates have been shut down, particularly the Mariner syndicates. There have been certain syndicates that have just simply not made it. So they've had to shut down. So there have been some very tough decisions that Lloyd's have had to make over the last two years, some very tough decisions that some of the syndicates have had to make, whether they can carry on trading. As I said, some have not made it. From a casualty standpoint, as a whole, I think most have made it through. There have been some challenges in certain syndicates in terms of having to pull back capacity, change their appetite, readjust. But that's sort of what happens in a, in a changing market. I would say today, Lloyd's from a US cashew standpoint is pretty robust. I think the changes that have been made of probably through the course of 2020, and it's probably not over yet, but most of those changes have been made in terms of at least their capacity and their appetite and their direction. And 
I feel much more confident today about the market than probably I did about 12 months ago, even though COVID is ongoing. COVID remains, you know, probably for everybody from personal lives and our corporate lives, you know, probably one of the, the biggest challenges that we've ever had, because we've never had a situation like COVID where we've all been working remotely. You know, we're used to be going into Lloyd's every day, you know, sitting with underwriters and talking through. So having to do that remotely over the last nine, 10 months has been very challenging for many. I feel very sorry for clients, particularly in a changing market. A lot of clients have been coming over to London every year, not sometimes once, maybe twice, three times a year. And the inability of clients to come to London and Bermuda for that reason is really, really challenging right now. And whilst we all love Zoom and all those online meeting sessions, you know, as I've just found with my own technical issues today, <laughs> you know, it, it's not perfect and you can't beat breaking bread and sharing a glass of water with clients and underwriters and building relationships. And that's what Lloyd's has always done. Lloyd's is water. always water, the holy water. <laughs> um, but you know, Lloyd's has always, always, you know, enjoyed that relationship building, which is critical to understanding risk and has empowered underwriters to make their decisions. As we talk about the syndicates going under review in this decile 10, where have appetites closed in terms of you know, industry or product or that sort of thing? I mean, what in the casualty world, where have you seen tightening in terms of what the Lloyd's marketplace is willing to write and what they're not willing to write? Every syndicate has a different view on every class of business. What one does does not mean another has the same view. But I think probably the the most challenging areas in the U.S. casualty world right now that we're seeing anyway, where we're really struggling, is habitational business. There's very little appetite for habitational business. Trucking business is interesting because there is appetite for trucking. And obviously, we've seen nuclear verdicts with trucking. And there is, you know, there is a finite of capacity that exists in Lloyd's for trucking business. It's mostly for the larger trucking accounts. And I, I think it's worth just talking about it because, you know, maybe some people don't truly understand, you know, what the appetite is. So trucking, you know, the market appetite is for sort of multi-year swing rated aggregate deals. A lot of trucking companies are putting a lot of money into technology and safety. Underwriters have said, okay, well, if you really think you're not going to get hit by a, a nuclear verdict, put your money where your mouth is and let's lock into a, a three-year stretch aggregate program. And if it goes really well at the end of three years, we'll give you a ton of money back. But if it goes really badly, you're going to have to pay more money. So that kind of approach is not for everybody, but there are definitely an increasing number of truckers that we're writing and the market is writing that like this approach. They don't want to get hit by, you know, the what I call straight risk transfer each and every, you know, massive increases in premium that are going on in the market. And they like this innovative approach. So again, it's not for everybody, but it's a, an example of how Lloyd's can be creative and do something a little different and walk through that. So other than habitational, I think the other area that I'm finding very tricky right now is correctional business. Uh, so anything with a sort of a, a jail, <laughs> correctional healthcare side is really, really tough right now. And we're really struggling to, to find anybody that has an appetite for that. And it's just, again, the loss ratios and loss history on correctional business has been particularly challenging for, uh, for, for many, many underwriters. But 
Other than that, uh, public entity is quite tough. There is capacity available for it, but the public entity market has enjoyed in the soft market a lot of what I would call very broad coverage triggers for employment practices, professional liability, particularly. And then we're seeing, obviously, with you know the Black Lives Matters movement and with your whole wonderful election process and writing, you know, a lot of challenges uh, in that particular business. So there is capacity there, but it's much more uh, careful probably than it has been before. And it's probably more limited than it has been before as well. Makes sense to me. You also spend a lot of time in the product recall marketplace and mentioned that area has had its difficulties as well. What is the foundation of, of the issues that, that are happening in the product recall side? I'm old enough to remember when one of the first policies was placed right after a Tylenol incident in Chicago, which some of you may, Brandon won't be old enough to remember it, but, but some of you might be old enough to remember it back in the 80s when there was a malicious tampering incident in Chicago. Tylenol was laced with mercury. I forget how many people died, but it was a tragic um, event. And from there, sort of malicious tampering got innovated. And from there, what we call accidental contamination got innovated. And from there, we now have a whole array of different product recall policies. So it's a very interesting market. It's not for the faint-hearted. There is a tremendous amount of competition in this area. So the challenges on recall are actually almost polar opposite to casualty. You've got so much capacity in the product recall area, both in the US, in London, and to more limited extent in Bermuda. So from a client standpoint, it's great. You know, there's lots to choose from. It's an area I would urge caution with because there are probably somewhere close to 15 different types of product recall wordings that people seem to make the mistake saying that they all say the same thing. They don't. They all say different things. So you really do need an expert to work with you in the product recall world because it's very specialized. The wordings are very intense. They're very broad, but there are a lot of what I call minefields in those wordings. And you need to be careful as you walk through them, making sure you understand what each one gives. So the challenges in the market are really interesting in that there is a lot of capacity, particularly in the food and beverage world, where we're seeing a lot of claims. And we've seen just, for example, in the last, what, six months, two new entrants come into London in the product recall market, one being Paragon, one being Global Product Recall, Global Product Recall, GPR, which is an interesting case study in a market dynamics where a lot is changing and maybe somewhat surprising as well. So yeah, so the challenges for recall are simply underwriters have got to find their niche. They've got to find their patch that they want to write. Automotive recall, which is another huge area for London, is, uh, is challenged because of COVID, because obviously with COVID, automotive sales have come down. So if you're a supplier of products to a Toyota or a, a Honda, whoever it may be, you know, you're probably being faced with a very difficult 2020 year. So we're finding some clients are really struggling right now to survive. And that's obviously causing, you know, some challenges in our market with income issues and, you know, requests for reduction in premium or reduction in, in exposures. But, you know, the automotive world, it's very, very interesting. And of course, things will rebound. And hopefully when we get out of this COVID mess, you know, we'll see uh, things pick up in 2021. 
You mentioned COVID. Obviously, we're all immersed in it here. I'm actually in my office. There's not very many people there, so I I have that benefit. But from a from a claims and coverage perspective, I mean, we've all we've all seen it. Maybe more anecdotally, you know, in headlines and insurance journal postings and that sort of thing. But Lloyd's. What have they seen in terms of coverage suits and, you know, what has the position been in, in most of the claim handling? Yeah, that's no, a good question. And again, it's, it's it's not a straightforward one to answer because, you know, there are so many different coverage angles to come from. But I guess the one that's in the press at the moment is there's a action group going on in the UK, about 330,000 businesses in the UK who, are, as we speak, are in the Supreme Court in the UK fighting for their coverage rights under all the various UK, these are not US, but UK policies that have been issued over the years. And I'm not a UK property guy, so I'm I'm completely out of my depth to even (laughs) talk about that. But I I think there's some lessons to be learned there, if I'll be totally honest, from, from a market standpoint, in that, you know, it's kind of frustrating to me that, you know, there's ambiguity on those policies where, you know, clients are obviously, we all serve our clients and we all report to our clients. And, you know, the fact that these policies are being fought and they're ambiguous and they probably are the same in the US as well. I know there, you know, there are a lot of litigation going on in the US at the moment as well, on particularly on property policies, not, not so much on casualty. And I think, you know, if we learn anything from COVID, I think hopefully we will all be able to have more succinct policies and do what it says on the tin because pandemics have been before. So why this particular one is a surprise to the whole insurance market is slightly beyond me. And it's slightly beyond me that, you know, the market has failed to address that particular coverage issue. And here we are in the Supreme Court, you know, fighting fighting a very important decision that's going to come down probably by the end of the week. But anyway, moving on from that, it is an area where I think there has been a lot of grey and not a lot of clarity. And whether it's in a property policy, whether it's in a casualty policy, whether it's in a recall policy, not all policies, obviously. Some, some, of, some of them have addressed it, but it is definitely brought into focus the need for absolute contract clarity. And, uh, you know, part of our duty in London is, you know, is obviously to try and listen to clients, try to bespoke wording as much as we can. The, the areas that you focus on, you always get hit by the area you didn't focus on. So, you know, we all try as best we can to try and cover everything. But I think it just serves to underscore that there is always going to be something that you miss, something that people hadn't expected. And I think the part of the challenge is the, the previous pandemics, you know, whether it's swine flu, avian flu, you know, the Spanish flu, they're so, they're so long ago, people have got such short memories that people just move on and deal with the challenge of today, whether it be cyber or whether it be terrorism or whether it be something else. So I think you know, there are a lot of lessons, Brandon, that hopefully, you know, the entire market globally will all learn from this. And the ability to address grey coverage areas is really, really important. How we do it, I'm not entirely sure, but it's, it is an interesting one. Have you have you seen any at least in the casualty policies? Have you seen any wording change since the pandemic started? Yeah, we do quite a lot of hospitality business, so the hospitality business is obviously very challenged right now. There seems to be 
not a consensus of opinion of how the markets will address what we call communicable disease. A lot of markets are in London and Bermuda are, are pressing for communicable disease exclusions. Some are prepared to underwrite it. And I say that somewhat cautiously because I don't want to give everybody the impression that you can get that coverage because it's very, very tricky indeed. And obviously hospitality, whether you're a hotel, whether you're a restaurant, you know, you're going to have a, you know, probably a, a quite a significant exposure to communicable disease. So certainly hospitality is the one that I would pick out that, you know, I think it's very, very challenged right now, as well as uh, public entity. So whether you're a county or you're a city or a municipality, you know, you're going to have, you know, some probably some quite significant exposure in that area. Makes sense. As we kind of continue on the status of the Lloyd's marketplace, you mentioned it earlier, but how did Brexit or does it uh, kind of, is it contemplated in the Lloyd's market now? I saw that Denmark opened their first syndicate after Brexit, but what are the fallouts from Brexit on your side? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. You know, I'm a U.S. casualty guy, so you know, I'm not I, I'm not placing European business. So I'll caveat a little bit in my answer. But I think the the latest report I read said that approximately about six billion euros of business was going to leave the Lloyd's market as a result of Brexit. So that's a significant number. However, what will happen is that a lot of that. Six billion that I mentioned will transition to Lloyd's in Brussels. So Lloyd's set up Lloyd's Brussels in the earlier part of this year in anticipation of Brexit. It, it, obviously, a contingency plan has been set up by Lloyd's in order to address that. From a broker's standpoint, you know, brokers will have to access a European broker, be it in Brussels or, or in Germany, in order to access Lloyd's Brussels. We set up our own company in Brussels in the earlier part of this year in order, again, to, to navigate around this whole issue. So the sort of, again, the long story short, I guess, is that, uh, yes, it's going to be impactful uh, to London-based underwriters and London-based brokers. But I think from a bigger picture standpoint, Lloyd's will transition that business as much as it can into Lloyd's Brussels and most of the brokers, as I said, have, like, like ourselves, have set up in European locations, be it Brussels or elsewhere, uh, again, to manage that. So it, it is disruptive. I think we all want to get past it. I think uh, December the 31st doesn't seem uh, like a long way away. It's been going on forever. So I think we just all just want to move on and get on with it and go to the next step. But, but yes, I think you know the plans have been set up. And uh, so from a US standpoint, I don't think it will have much impact from from what we do. Well, we don't. We we in the U.S. all know how you feel wanting to get past something happening in our political political life. So, well, well, let's talk about the future of Lloyd's and and how you think technology will play a role. How you think reinsurance, if you if you think surplus uh, continues to go down the this more corporate route, or do you think there will be kind of a change moving forward or remaining static? I mean, what do you see for the future of Lloyd's and how it's structurally working? In my humble opinion, I think Lloyd's had a real opportunity with COVID to completely look at itself in the mirror 
and transform itself into the modern world. Because we have been, and you know, it's not all bad, living really in a slightly old era of tradition and going to Lloyd's and taking paper and negotiating. And as I said earlier, I think that has a real play in our market. That's what we do. That's what we've done best. And whilst technology is great, nothing beats that human interaction and that relationship-driven business that can win the day. So I guess as a market practitioner, what I was hoping for is that Lloyd's would say, okay, we need to reinvent ourselves because of COVID. Clearly, you know, the day-to-day trading of having 45,000 people, or sorry, up to 45,000 people coming into a single building and running around like busy bees may not be the best practice in the world. I'll be honest, I, I was very disappointed. That, you know, Lloyd's decided to put up screens on its boxes, a bit like in a supermarket. That was, from my standpoint, some extent of the modernization that Lloyd's went through. And I, again, I am disappointed because I, I think it, it was such an opportunity for Lloyd's to create something that we could all be really proud of and something that is relevant today where there could be what I call modern day trading. So I think there is more to this story than meets the eye. I think there will be some changes. You know, they're already talking about virtual underwriting rooms and having the ability to trade virtually as well as to trade in person. And to be honest, I think that is the blend we need. We need that ability to blend virtual trading in line with physical trading as well. How that exactly works, I'm not entirely sure. You've got to remember that Lloyd's is one of the most expensive real estate institutions in the world. So to take a box in Lloyd's for an underwriter, and I can't remember the exact amount of money per square foot, but it's it's an eye-watering amount of money. So Lloyd's underwriters, of course, want something out of this as well. They you know they want a better bang for their buck. They want to to get more out of the the world today in terms of what Lloyd's presents and the ability to go to Lloyd's and how it changes. So so there are challenges there right now, and I don't think anybody's particularly worked out how it should look, how it should shape itself for the future. But I think it has missed a trick. But hopefully, John Neal and the Corporation of Lloyds will further refine the process to allow all the practitioners who work there, both underwriters and brokers, a better solution. Because right now, it's not working. Lloyds has been pretty much empty since it reopened its doors a few months ago, which is disappointing to a lot of people. You know, modernization is definitely under the microscope at the moment. And I think to be fair to the underwriters and the brokers across London, I think everybody's done a really good job in the challenged world we live in today in trading virtually. So almost all trading started virtually, what, it was the end of March, beginning of April, something like that. For the most part, it's gone pretty well. Bearing in mind, you know, we were a pretty old-fashioned institution going into Lloyd's every day, doing everything almost all around paper. So having to give all that up and then go virtually has been enormously challenging. But I think, to be fair to everybody, they've done a really good job. We have a thing called PPL in Lloyd's, which is the trading platform where all slips are now signed electronically by underwriters. And PPL was brought into the market about a year ago. Thank goodness it was because, you know, the ability now to have contracts signed through PPL has gone really well. And it was there before COVID. And as I said, thank goodness it was because it meant that things have gone much, much better. And if PPL hadn't been there, I think it would have been a real mess, to be honest with you. And we'll all be struggling to get signed contracts and slips. But anyway, so yeah, so the technology is still right. 
I think we're going to be seeing, as we are now, digital syndicates. Brit set up Key, KI syndicate a few months ago, which is their digital online follow syndicate. And I think innovative technology syndicates and other types of innovation that the Lloyd's laboratories are working on are all starting to send through. So there is good coming through. Please don't get me wrong. And I didn't mean to be defaming to Lloyd's in terms of their ability to wrap in the new technology in the world we're living in today. But you know, there are frustrations across the market of, of how we've addressed this. But there is also really good work going on in terms of new technology syndicates coming through, new innovation uh, coming out of what we call the Lloyd's Laboratory. For example, you know, I know there's a vaccine product for transportation of vaccines across the world, which Lloyd's has innovated. And obviously, that's very prevalent right now with all the vaccines that are coming out. So there's a lot of good stuff going on, but there's also a lot of challenges as well. Makes sense. I, I actually read something yesterday that Carnegie Brown was interviewed, I think, in business insurance or something where he said that the Lloyds wanted to get back to their roots. And you mentioned it earlier that it basically started in a coffee shop. And I think he alluded to potentially looking at underwriting desks as less important and maybe going back to a more coffee shop like interaction community. I don't know if you've heard anything about that. I think I just saw it yesterday, though. So it must be in at least the stratosphere for for Lloyd's to be considering some changes in terms of how they work. Yeah, I I read that same article. And I think I was pleasantly surprised, actually, because I think, yeah, that is probably what we need to go back to. And sometimes you need a catastrophic event to bring everybody back to basics and where we all started and where we all began. And I think, you know, that ability to sit in a coffee shop and enjoy a a cup of your favorite frappuccino or your uh, your glass of water and enjoy the company of, of others is really, really important. Do you need, you know, a vast oral refinery like Lloyd's housing, you know, up to 45,000 people all mingling around? Or do you need something a little bit more basic where people can go in and meet and have coffee and share ideas? Uh, and I think, yeah, Lloyd, Lloyd's is going to find its way through to a solution. And, and it may very well be Edward Lloyd's coffee house that was started 340 years ago. I'll be there. Looks like we got a first question here. Christy says, so the Lloyd's resistance to change from in-person to virtual, am I correct that it is more related to keeping the current structure rather than they feel there is more risk difficulty when trying to underwrite virtually? Yeah, so I think the question is, is there more challenge underwriting virtually? Is that what the question is asking? Yeah, is there a challenge to writing virtually or is it just maybe resistance to change? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think there, you know, underwriters are always, dare I say, you know, resistant to change, but they've had to in this particular regard, they've had no choice but to adopt the change. You know, the underwriter ability to trade virtually from London has been a challenge for, for, for many, there's no doubt, you know, in terms of the technology, in terms of you know, working from home and all the Wi-Fi connections and everything else. But I think it's been every underwriter I speak to who's been fully supported by their management, by their, their, by their back office staff. So the transition, whilst it's been painful in some areas, is actually, I, as I said earlier, I think it's gone really well. And I think the underwriters have had 
a good, on the whole, a very good transition. So it's worked much better, Brandon, I think, personally, than everybody had expected. Because when we all heard we're going to be working from home, we all took a deep sigh and went, oh, my word, how's this going to work? <laughs> and is it going to work? Right. And uh, But it has actually, for the most part, as I said, gone much better than we all anticipated. I think because the technology was creeping in, before COVID, as I mentioned with PPL and other platforms that have allowed underwriters to trade electronically. You know, for some of the the old school people like myself, it's probably been more of a challenge versus, you know, if you're somebody 25, 28, who's used to all that technology. So I think, you know, we've all got better. And I was telling my my son actually yesterday that, you know, I, I think I've actually got better from, although today has proved a challenge, but for technology-wise, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's been a learning experience for all of us, you know, having to be better from a technology standpoint and more apt to providing a response. But I think generally underwriters' responses are quicker now in the virtual world than possibly they were pre-COVID, which is interesting. Maybe it's not always the right response because we don't take no as an answer, as, as you know, but underwriters are very quick to say no virtually, where if they meet with somebody, it's kind of harder to say no. So right. try to figure out a way. So again, it's a balance with everything. It's, I, I don't want no. I want, I want to understand how we can find a solution rather than taking no. The back of the napkin deal, so to speak, is more difficult in this setting where we don't share the napkin. <laughs> As we kind of look at everything that you've talked about and everything that's going on from a you know loss standpoint, from a you know environmental standpoint, are are you seeing more underwriting? Are you seeing underwriting change how it's done? I mean, I I know just doing a lot in the uh, the share and economy space. I see a lot more underwriters looking at, you know, a, a better way to measure usage or volume. You know, the the in the casualty market, sales have always been one of the main baselines for for how we're rating, you know, rating insurance premiums or rating insurance policies and their, their premium. Are you seeing more granular lenses being placed on usage outside of the sharing economy, or is that still sort of the focal point of it? It's all about the data in today's world. Data is king or queen. So the more data you have, the better chance you have of getting the deal you want placed. I, I can't emphasize that strongly enough. The quality of submissions that come over are varied. Some are very good with huge amounts of data. Other simply lacking in enormous detail. So in today's market, you know, underwriters are obviously prioritizing those risks with good data. So if you've got good data, and data can mean a whole bunch of things, right? You know, whether it's claims, whether it's usage, whether it's mileage, whether it's you name it, depends on what setting you're in. But whatever that data you have, the ability to capture it and manipulate it and use it and demonstrate it to underwriters is going to be a very powerful tool. So underwriters, yes, are putting a lot more emphasis on data. And, you know, for example, in, in the trucking world, you know, just taking that as an example. So if you have the ability to triangulate your losses and show a triangulation, you're going to get a very good audience because organizing triangulated loss runs, I know how challenging it is. 
But every agent, every insured has that data. They've just got to work out how to capture it and put it into a format that everybody can understand. So the other thing that we've been working on at our company is what we call Hyperion X, or now called HX. So Hyperion X is tasked at the moment with taking data and working out on from a data standpoint about why your risk is better or maybe worse than someone else's. Then going to the market and telling our underwriters like, well, hold on a minute, why have you rated that account on that basis? We've got all this data in comparison, which supports that our risk is actually better than what you're saying it is. So the brokers like ourselves are, I think, getting much smarter with the data, trying to use that data, capture that data, prove to the markets and to clients alike that their data may be better, may be worse and using that. So data is really, really powerful right now. Underwriters are definitely getting the joke and they're, they're using the data more to their benefit as so as the brokers like ourselves, as I mentioned. Actuaries are obviously still playing a huge role in long-tail casualty lines, whether it's sharing economy, whether it's medical malpractice, trucking. Whilst I think actuaries are important, you know, one of the things I think, Brandon, you and I would agree on you know, there's only so much amount of rear view looking you can do. It's all very good looking in the rear view mirror. But sometimes as, as underwriters, we want to encourage them to look, at, look out of the front windscreen. So actuaries, you know, will look at that historical data and historical losses and historical exposures and come up with a figure. Well, that's great. But have you looked at what's going on today's world and the future world of tomorrow? Because the world is changing, as we all know, very, very fast. And I don't believe that looking at 10 years of data truly represents what's happening in the world today for the next 10 years. So it's a transition we're trying to encourage underwriters. Like, yes, we understand you need to have an actuary look at things, but also look at what's going on today's world and how that world has changed and what that will mean for the next 10 years of risk rather than just relying on the past. Well, particularly in casualty where you specifically liability, unlike, you know, workers' comp where, you know, it's statutory and, and payments are predictable in the liability space. You're talking about eight jurors or 10 jurors potentially deciding, you know, your fate and that can be vastly different than any anything that you've had uh, historically. So it's it, it is very hard to develop future losses based on past ones. I think we're coming up here on the hour. Do we have any questions? One of the questions I have, Justin, is you mentioned data. Data is kind of the, the king of the trait here. So with the data, are you seeing that underwriters are more, it's a two-part question that says, so are you seeing underwriters more apt to changing program structure is the first part. And then the second part is, are you seeing the brokers, risk manager, or the underwriters coming back and saying, hey, based off of your data, we're recommending this program structure. Yeah. I mean, underwriters are obviously going to rate primarily based on your data. If your data is poor and you're asking for program structures and changes and concessions, you're probably not going to get it. If your data is really good and you're asking for, for changes in terms of whether it's structure, layers, coverage, whatever it may be, you're, you're going to get a better, better audience. So it, it's, it, again, it's a slightly 
tough question to ask because every, every situation is different. And it depends what the ask is, you know, whether you're asking for the price to be reduced or the layer to be expanded or the attachment point reduced. If you have really good data, and as I said, it could be triangulated losses, it could be peer comparisons and, you know, how your losses compare to your peers and so on. If you were able to demonstrate that, you're going to get a better hearing. And I think the challenge is, is that every underwriter right now from our world are completely underwater. They're completely overloaded. And, you know, we have to shout really hard with every underwriter at the moment to get the audience we want, to get them uh, in line. And quite frankly, if they don't have a good submission and good data, they're just going to put it to the bottom of the pile every time. And the accounts where there is good data, they're going to put that to the top of the pile and they're going to listen to what we have to say. And I will add that whilst data is really, really important, again, that human interaction between client and underwriter is also, is always going to remain equally as important as the data. So please don't get me wrong. The data is really, really important and probably the most important thing in this market. But the ability to interact with clients and underwriters also will help our cause enormously. So, yeah, it's a it's a good question, and it's something that, as I say, I think we need to encourage everybody to look harder on, particularly on on the data mapping process and how to better capture the data. All right, thanks for listening to Axe Pod. For more content, please look us up on iTunes. This is episode number thirteen, so we we have quite a few more episodes you can download. Please subscribe to us on iTunes. We're going to work on getting this pod out to some other platforms we're listening to. So thanks a lot, and we'll see you next time.